What if I told you that hope is not just an abstract thought, but an action, a verb even, something tangible that you can do every day, something you can do which will change your experienced internal discomfort or even trauma, particularly around climate change? Well, that is what we're talking to Emily Ellers about today. It's a great conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. Thanks for listening. I'm Osher Ginsberg. If you're new to the show, I don't make this alone. I make this with a bunch of fantastic people and I need to pay them. So before we get to the podcast, you might hear an ad. If you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. If not, you'll hear something wonderful from Emily Ellis. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We have so many opportunities to get back to what being human actually is, which is not just sitting at a desk doing something that has no meaning or purpose to us, barely seeing our kids, being able to buy a new thing though. That's not a life and that's not being human. And it's not to judge people who are stuck in that because, I mean, my husband for one currently is quite stuck in that. It's not that, but it's just kind of going, hey, we've got a way that's going to not only solve the big problem of a heated planet, but we can actually get back to a joyous existence in the process. It can feel nicer. That was author, activist and artist Emily Ellis. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks, Heath, for being here. Welcome to the first new episode of 2022. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. If you've never listened to this show before, this is a podcast that will help you make today better than yesterday. That's the guarantee. It says so on label. It does what it says on the box. We've been here since 2013. We're here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And something you hear today will help you make today better than yesterday. That 
is what we're here to do because that's what I wanted out of a show, so I made one. If you're new, uh, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a what else am I? Am I? I'm a, I'm a green screen lighter. I'm a barbell lifter. I'm a uh, intermittent faster. I'm a med taker. Uh, I'm someone that lives with a different brain. I have lots of acronyms associated with my name, including uh, OCD. And I tend to talk about that shit quite a bit because fuck it, you know. You can't be what you can't see. And if you don't understand that people with different brains are just fucking fine and can have lives and families and careers and experience love and joy and happiness, you might not realize it's true, but it is. I'm proof. So here we are. Thanks for being a part of it. If you need me at all, you can always find me. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram and uh, it's pretty easy to find me there. Uh, lovely to get your emails. Thank you so much again for the people that encouraged me to uh, check elsewhere for my uh, vaccine booster. I'm now triple fucking vaxxed. Kabow. Come at me. No, actually, don't come at me because I don't want to lose my sense of taste. That would be terrifying. Um, somebody I know lost their sense of taste and that is fucking frightful. It's still gone. I love food. Food's all I have. So, yeah, I'll be wearing my mask and keeping away from you if you want to come and hug me. I love you, but let's not hug, okay? <laughs> Just for now, if that's all right. I can't wait for you to hear today's conversation. Let me tell you about my guest today. Emily Ellers is an author. She's an artist and she's an environmental activist. Her latest book, Hope is a Verb, is out now. It's out wherever you can get a book. She's also on Instagram, eco with M, E-C-O-W-I-T-H-E-M. She's an absolutely marvellous human. I'm so grateful we got a chance to catch up. We spoke at the end of last year. I, I packed a bunch of shows in before the break. So there's a few that are coming in the next few weeks that uh, were recorded a few weeks ago. But we chatted actually during COP26, the big climate conference in Glasgow. We chatted during that last year. And you, so you'll hear some things about us talking to the climate conference going on right now. And I left it all in because... The conversation about climate isn't over. I mean, we really need to have that conversation every day. Um, so I left them in for context, but just know that that's why we're talking about it. The climate emergency didn't stop at COP26. You saw the footage of Corumban over the Christmas break. You've seen the sand washed away from the Collaroy seawall in Sydney. You've, you know, saw Perth on fire. Uh, you've experienced the rain, the floods, the crop devastation, the potatoes, the potatoes, won't someone think of the fucking potatoes? I love chips. I love fries. And 90-something percent of Victoria's potato crop is gone. Fucking hell, man. And we're just getting started. So let's save the potatoes. It's not just about a hotter and, and wetter climate. It's about food security. It's about water supply, clean water. And it's about what happens to a society, a community, people like you and me, when food security and water supply are threatened. We've seen what happens in other countries when food and water run out. I don't want that here, and you don't want it either. So now is the time to act. Now's the time to build. Now's the time to put systems in place. Now's the time to start to change the way we do things bit by bit by bit so it's not all at once because it's eventually going to have to happen and I'd rather not happen, have it happen all at once. I know you wouldn't either. I wanted you to hear this today. And I wanted you to think while you're listening to it, think about the world that you will live in, that your kids will live in, in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now. And keep that in your mind come election time. Because if the MP in your area 
isn't thinking about and putting policies in and voting for policies that need to change today to ensure that your home, your real estate, your investment, your probably retirement, your food supply and your water supply are safe, you need to call them. You need to tell them to act on it and you need to do that and then tell them, if you don't, I will vote for someone who will because that's the end of the story. Em's book is great. I absolutely loved it. Hope is a verb is the name of the book. She's a great chat. Enjoy this conversation with Emily Ellis. How you going today, Emily? I'm really good. It's so nice to be talking with you. I'm really grateful we could do it. I'm, I know we had to shift this around a few times. But thank you so much for being flexible. Oh, no, no. It's all good. It, it's been <laughs> an interesting couple of months for everyone. <laughs> and uh, yeah. the realities of um, no childcare and trying to sort make everything work has made a few things a little tricky, but thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that we uh, finally got to do this. What part of the world are you in? Uh, I'm in Western Australia. I moved to the country during lockdown last year. We've been pretty good. We've escaped a lot of lockdown, but we moved down to the country during our like six-week one. So. Right. <laughs> I mean, are you in the broomy, Exmouthy bit or the Margaret Rivery, Albany bit? The bottom, yeah. No, I'm down near Margaret River kind of. I'm in Australind which our closest city is Bunbury. All so right. a beautiful place. Is that Luke Longley territory? I don't know. I think he's up in Perth, isn't he? Oh, he's got some farm. I watched his oh, okay. Australian story and he's got some unbelievable farm that he bought when he first got drafted into the NBA. When he was 20, he bought, he just threw some money down, now lives on this, he, he's on the beach. <laughs> oh, so you've probably been yelling up. That's primo, primo territory. You want to be down there. <laughs> it, is, it is incredible. Like I'm real, I'm really grateful to talk to you. I've been following your work online for quite some time and I'm just fascinated with the idea of the book, Hope is a, a Verb. It's a great idea, especially in times when I'm, I'm kind of avoiding my phone today because COP26 is on at the moment, as I'm sure you know. I just want to tear my hair out and flip a table and set things on fire and kick doors in. And that's not good for me when I want to play with my kids, you know? Yeah, I can, I can relate. I can relate. Yeah, it is really hard. Hope is a verb's become a, man, a mantra for me. It, it was obviously why we titled the book as that. And, yeah, when we're seeing these massive shifts in the world and we're seeing our leaders not leading, it can be really disheartening. But I, I've kind of condition myself to just keep going and, and being radically optimistic, as I say. <laughs> I kind of want to get to that. How early in your life did this kind of start? I mean, I, when I think about myself, it was all the talk of the hole in the ozone layer and the Montreal Agreement in 1986. And that's when I first started realising that our consumption as humans was on a course that we would eventually have to adjust. That was when it first came to my mind. What about you? It happened really, really early for me, weirdly as well, because I wasn't in just kind of a very natural environment. I grew up in England uh, and I managed to catch on the news whaling and I saw, you know, the kind of iconic, awful image of the tail being winched up into the boat. And so you're five or six, that was. And it must have, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg thing. I don't know if it was always in me and that just kind of sparked it, but from then on, I was annoyingly interested in the environment and I could, I think I'm wired to be a little bit anxious and it literally, it really caused me to be anxious from a young age. 
I remember that was the, I mean, I'm nearly 50. You're much younger than me. Whaling was in full force while mm. I was alive and the moratorium showed up when I was eating. That's why I remember the footage you're, you're talking about, the kind of footage mm. you're talking about. Was it the idea of seeing this clearly intelligent being thrashing about and not wanting to be speared through the tail with a three-metre-long piece of metal and then and cut to pieces alive? Yeah, funnily enough, it's not on everyone's priority list. Um, I think so. I think I'd always grown up just kind of so fascinated by the ocean and obviously whales and dolphins kind of get the spotlight on that mm. and it just felt wrong. I don't know what happened, but I know that mum mum was very upset because I went vegetarian, which wasn't easy then and especially to add another thing to manage in a, a lunchbox. But, yeah, it just really struck me as that that doesn't sit well with me. You're six and you go vegetarian. Mm, yes, Whoa. and mum tried to trick me and apparently I would read loudly from the menu. She specifically remembers me going, succulent pieces of chicken. <laughs> that was when I was older than six, obviously. But, yeah, it wow. really affected me. Did you even know what a vegetarian was? No, no, I didn't. I just didn't want to eat animals. And this is quite funny in like a black comedy sort of way, but our school actually took us to an abattoir for an um, excursion which, you know, why? why? So that, that that also, that kind of happened at the same time. So it really just, yeah, it struck me that this was wrong. Part of me is kind of grateful that you take some grade two kids to an abattoir. Mm. Did they show the slaughtering? No, they just kind of, they showed, like, I don't really remember it. Mum just says it's kind of a very, it's like my watershed moment almost. Yeah. So I don't really remember what I see. I don't think I, they would have shown us any animals. I don't remember that. And you're right, because we can't divorce ourselves from the process. And I make sure that my children are very aware of, like, when one of them was talking about not eating chicken, I'm like, you you know that nuggets are chicken, right? Like, we, so we've had to have that conversation. And my son, who's four, he doesn't want to eat meat. My daughter is almost nine, and she's, she's wrestling with it. So I'll get back to the abattoir visit in just a minute, but... <laughs> Can I ask you, only if you're okay to talk about it, how you handle what your own kids eat? Like, is it a sort of thing where, well, I grew up believing in such and such a religion, therefore that's what my kids will do and they don't have any chance. We're going to get baptised, we're going to get all the ceremonies and that's just it. Or do you be like, okay, when you're old enough, you'll think about it. Like, what is it for you? Yeah, I, I want to have open conversations with them. I don't want to force them to do anything that they don't want to do or and make them feel kind of ostracized, but I want them to be aware and mm. I want to empower them with their own choices. And it's the same. I'm a lot of my work focuses on plastic consumption. I'm the same with plastic. I'm like, we don't buy much new at all. Sometimes if it's like Christmas, they might save up for one thing, but I, I'd let them know. I'm like, we can get this secondhand. If you get that little plastic toy that's for free at Coles or Woolies, that's a problem that's not going to go away for 500 years and it's not something that you're going to constantly play with. It's just this, this add-on sort of thing and they're, they're actually, they really have responded well to it. To be six and go, I don't want to eat meat anymore, mum, you would have had that. I can imagine that your heel stomped into the floor quite powerfully and she went, oh, she's not fucking around. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's exact. Mum said it was just, she was just going, oh, no. But another thing, because I was always very, yeah, like anxious and aware and I was a fun kid, I think, but I definitely had that anxiety from the get-go. <laughs> right, right. Did that cause an issue outside of things? Like is that something you had to um, kind of deal with along the way? Yeah, for sure. And I still do. I think I always will. I think 
Matt Haig says anxiety can be like a, an injury where you've always got to kind of be looking out for it and favoring and and exercising properly where you're you're maintaining that. And if I let my self-care drop, if I am down like the wormhole of doom and I'm just scrolling and scrolling, I still have that, especially as you said with COP26, like you've got to really manage things when you're seeing outcomes that you're not wanting. Tell me about the kind of daily habits that you have around, I guess, fortifying your mental health and giving you that robust, shall we say, buffer in order to absorb the, hang on, David Attenborough stood in front of them and said what, and they still did what? Hmm. I get up ridiculously early. This is not I'm not recommending this. I always have to say, like, I'm not saying this is the right thing. I think this is to do with my ADD, but I get up at four and that is before my kids are awake and I just kind of stream of consciousness journal. I try to kind of identify what my priorities are with work and I just have some time just to be quiet and to, I try to meditate, although I'm terrible at it, and just kind of give myself that little bubble before the day starts getting crazy to just be for a bit with it. Does moving your body come into the part, you know, self-care at all? Yeah, walking for me. And, and that is, um, I feel like I'm kind of doing some sort of fandangle trick where I'm compensating for my bad meditation because then I'll walk with music on and we live on a river. We've got loads of birds around and I just walk and listen to music. I don't listen to podcasts during the morning because I just want to be able to kind of get my brain kind of humming along to its own thing before I'm reactive and hearing other ideas. Right, and that those two things in concert, they they fortify you a bit more to take on the day? Yeah, they do. They do. I need to have just a little bit of time to process things. I, I mean, with COP and, and just all the things that we're hearing about climate change, I just need a moment of quiet where I don't have to worry about <laughs> the state of the planet. So, yeah, it does. It does. Now, I've been quite public about my moment where I kind of slipped off the edge of the doom and I, uh, it took me a long time to, to crawl back from it. And, it, you know, I'm quite active every day in keeping that robust defence mechanism around my head so I can process the news, whereas there was a time where I couldn't deal with it at all. Was there a time when you lost grip on it? Was there a time when it kind of consumed you and took over? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I loved your book and that part really spoke to me. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't as dramatic as that, but I mean, I had one where I ran out of the supermarket in tears at the tuna aisle and that I had introduced, I didn't stay vegetarian from when I was that young. I kind of went off, but that was when I was vegan. And that's actually the the little kind of comic strip cartoon that opens the book. And I just, I was trying to go plastic free, no palm oil, local, all the things, no meat, dairy or whatever. And just seeing the tuna aisle and just going, oh my gosh, this is one aisle in one suburb, in one country. How can there be this much tuna? Like how much more can we scoop out? And yeah, I just had to leave. I was just devastated. <laughs> and what did it take you to to come back from that? Because you know, your kids are hungry. How are you going to get back to the supermarket? Like <laughs> what did you do? Uh, that was before kids. Ah. Um, I actually drove to a horrible fast food chain and ate the worst thing that had all the things on the list on it, basically. And I, I, for a moment, I gave up. And that's been one of the central kind of experiences I've drawn on from the book and moving forward in how I communicate ideas around the environment. Just kind of understanding when a problem becomes that nebulous and huge and overwhelming that it can really click quickly into apathy. Because I did, I'd lost, I lost hope in that moment. So it took me quite a while to realise that the environment is 
well, the living world is just one of the most important things that I think about daily. And I can't ignore my little inner sort of alarm that's telling me to do something for it. But yeah, but it did show how overwhelm can strike. <laughs> the nebulous overwhelm, uh, people may not have experienced this around climate yet, but probably people will all relate to that point where you're like, oh, fuck, summer holidays coming up. Shit, I'm really, I should get to the gym by now. There's no mm. way I'm going to have to be on the beach. I'm going to get invited to go to the beach. Fuck, oh, September goes past, October goes past, November goes, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Online shopping for, you know, <laughs> most cover rule swimsuit I can find. <laughs> like, Yeah, more. and I don't know if you've seen that post that's going viral at the moment. I think it was from Milkwood Permaculture. There had been a bushfire that had ripped through the, her Aussie town. And she was saying, I wish that we had COP26 here where it's not invisible. And I've been thinking about that so much, kind of going, people do miss it. I wish the the attendees at COP26 were fed a diet that people who are living in food insecurity are being fed because I'm sure they're going to be getting lovely food. Oh, and yeah. I just, I think it needs to be visible and people need to immerse themselves in that. And that's a part that I, you know, when it comes to this climate stuff, and I remember talking about this years ago with Dr. Carl on this show, that unfortunately as humans our decision-making is really terribly, for the most part, wired to be made on things we see in front of our eyes. It's very hard for us to make a massive decision with a lot of gravity about an imaginary thing in the future as terrifyingly provenly true that it's going to happen by science that it may be. We kind of have to wait for the heart yeah. attack before we change our diet. And it sucks. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, there's that book, um, Hyper Objects, which talks about imploding when you're trying to kind of visualise such a big catastrophic event or even just a big number, which is I think that is what happened with me when I was looking at all the tins of tuna. And I think people are in denial. I think people really want to believe that there's going to be some silver bullet that either fixes things, outdesigns the problem, or just that we're wrong. And that they don't have to give up the online shopping addiction and the driving everywhere and all those comfortable things. For anyone that is interested in keeping the status quo, it's very easy to induce that overwhelm by threatening the things that we know and love and mm. saying they're going to be taken away. Electric cars not going to tell your boat, for example. Mm. And so it's important as we move forward to really talk about the possibility ahead, mm. isn't it? Because everything else just creates inaction and giving up and fuck it, it's bigger than me, can't do it. Yeah, ch change is scary. Most people don't like big changes and when you've got politicians sitting there saying they're trying to take away your burgers, yeah, it's designed to get people to go, to run the other way and I very much subscribe to Paul Hawke and he, he says basically we can say that climate change is happening to us or for us. I believe for because the way that we have been treating the planet, the people on it and just our resources has not been fulfilling in any way. It's not like we've been having a, a great time doing this. There's been a lot of destruction and this is a way to reconnect us to what matters most and I find that incredibly exciting. And that's a way to look at any problem in our lives, really. I like to talk, think about that. You know, I, I certainly found a huge leap forward in my own experience when I stopped seeing things happening to me and I tried to see things happening for me. That mm. way I would try and have an adjustment and try and find a lesson in whatever was going on. And it allowed me to kind of snap out of this loop of resentment in action and then repeating the same mistake. And 
that is it's not always perfect. It takes a while for me to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, yeah, you can see things happening to you or you can see things happening for you. And in part of storytelling and part of trying to talk about the positivity and the possibility ahead of us rather than just doom, because we could talk about doom all day and neither of us would want to leave the house. <laughs> Why did you find, how have you found that your ability to use the visual medium in the way that you can. Why is illustration, do you feel, so powerful when it comes to talking about this kind of stuff? Well, I think we're overwhelmed by the amount of information we've got coming at us anyway. And I find a lot of people that are communicating ideas want to use really big wordy words and sound extremely smart. Whereas what we really need is people simplifying ideas to get more people on board and not have people just kind of preaching to their choirs or, or arguing with other people. I think that the artwork is just, it's approachable and it makes it a bit more fun. And it also, I like to draw on kind of imagery that sticks in people's heads. So instead of them having to remember all these acronyms, they've got like characters that they can relate to. And it just, I think we all need to kind of parent ourselves a bit at the moment because we've got so much happening. And I think a picture book is, is a great way for us to learn. And why not a picture lecture? Why not a picture lecture? We have picture <laughs> lectures anyway. They're called PowerPoint slides. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you may as well. You may as well. When did you discover that you were particularly good at communicating in this way? Because to distill something into a, a single frame is an incredible talent. Oh, thank you. It was pretty accidental. And it's kind of been this nice merging of all of my passions that are a bit weird. Like I'm interested, obviously, in environmentalism, but I've always been into drawing and doodling away and doing cartoons. And it just kind of merged. And it was when I was at university, I was studying sustainability and I started doodling my lectures. And so I just started sharing them. And I noticed the reaction of people kind of going, wow, like, thank you for explaining it that way. That, that makes so much sense to me. So I just kept doing it. And it was a surprise to me on how much it had caught on. I've actually given lectures or given a keynote and I've had someone doing that on a whiteboard next to me and I've seen it done live. And it's really interesting. It's so it's such an incredible way to convey what can be quite a dense amount of concept into one thing where you just go, all right, oh, I get it. All mm. oh, right, uh, fair enough. Um, how did you come to the idea of putting a, a, a book out? You've been you've had an online presence for some time. Why why the book? The book. I, it's always been a dream of mine to write a book. I was really lucky in that they approached me and said, I think that there's something here that you could put together. Uh, and I was like, cool, I'm going to do it on eco-anxiety and finding hope in and environmentalism. And the more we kind of fleshed it out, we were just kind of going, well, actually the way that you use hope doesn't matter what topic you're approaching. You, you Hope is kind of a similar process. So when we kind of, it was, it's comical timing because we sort of inked that that deal just as the bushfires kind of set in in Australia and I was going, okay, <laughs> just agreed to write a book about hope. This is quite scary. <laughs> but it was really cathartic as well because I got to test out in real time how to kind of approach hope. Mm. I'm sure it happens every day. Someone goes, everyone's talking about this thing a lot. I should probably look into it. And then, hmm. you know, they look and they discover and they see a few graphs and they watch a lecture or two and then they just go, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> We're fucked. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it can be 
utterly overwhelming. So, you know, every day there'll be people feeling what I felt the day that my brain broke and I, I plunged into overwhelming panic. And I've got to tell you, though, if I'd read your step one, stop freaking out on that day, it would not have worked because my brain was, my brain had broken. I was not able mm. to process ideas like that. But on a brain that does work, how can you possibly say stop freaking out to someone who is faced with the magnitude and gravity of, of the truth of what we're facing? That chapter, when I was writing it, I pictured someone like, because I've had anxiety attacks that have ended up in the emergency department where I was convinced I was dying. And I just wanted that chapter to be like the hands on your shoulders, just gripping you and just going, just stop and breathe a bit. And obviously there's different cases where that's not going to work, but just to say, this is okay. This is what's happening in your body. And I go through kind of the the actual physical things that are happening in your body, because when someone's telling you that something's not happening and you can very clearly feel that it is happening, it's really irritating. And so I just wanted that to be kind of a reframing of fear and anxiety and pain and saying, you will, this will pass. And it's important. This is an alarm that's going off and giving you feedback and telling you that there's something really important that you really care about. And it's not this kind of like get out of anxiety free card. It's you're going to have to experience that because we don't have a choice sometimes, but then figuring out how to optimize it and use it and and get leverage from it. It is important. I think I, I spoke with Margaret Klein Solomon about this. It's important to pass through that phase. You actually have to go through the the horrific realization of the pickle we're in, in order to get a clear grasp of why it is important to be in action. Because if you just kind of shrug and go, oh, it looks kind of bad. I might go to the march. Yeah, <laughs> but to be in true acceptance of how where we are is. Yeah. <laughs> it's amount. And I think that's the thing. I, I feel like everyone has heard the cliched story of us being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the modern day saber-toothed tigers, which are our emails and our notifications, all these things. And we know about that. But what most people don't know is that after the pers- the cave person has escaped the tiger, there's a grief process or and an anxiety where your body actually processes the stress. So just because the stress of the tiger went away doesn't mean your body's stress has been processed. Mm. So I kind of just want to normalize going, okay, you're allowed to feel grief about hearing what's happening to some of our forests or our polar ice caps. Feel it, process it, and then you are going to be better equipped and more resilient to get up the next day to keep going. When it came to the second step in your walk, change the story. Why is a reframe important when you're in that mode? I think of our internal sort of our thought processes that it's like a soundtrack to me. And if you're trying to run to like a slow beat or Sade, it's really hard. Whereas if you put a different beat on, it's easier. It's easier to run to a faster pace. And I kind of think about the stories that we tell ourselves are our soundtracks, you know, and it's really important. Stories are how humans have always learned. It's what connects us and moves us and teaches us. So we need to be aware of what we're telling ourselves because if if we're sitting there saying we're doomed, there is no point, our hope is going to be completely eroded and if we have no hope, then there's no point to try. So it's important that we're very clear on what we're talking to ourselves about. So how can we change the story? Well, I think it's um, making sure that you're seeing more stories. There are so many examples of people that are doing incredible things and technology and innovations that exist now that 
have been proven to be equipped to kind of handle these crises. So I think it's important to not just not just take the stories we're being fed, but also go out and seek the, the other stories. I know that there's, I can't remember his name, it's escaped me, but there is a guy who has developed floating wind turbines that are going to be incredible. And if we, because we know that Australia is going to be amazing if we can switch to all sort of renewable, we, we can be an amazing case study for how to get to net zero. And, and things like that, I think finding people who are actually doing the work and holding on to those stories as examples of hope. This is also, I guess, changing the story is also going from happening to us to happening for us, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's directive. I think we need to be seeing people who are doing the work, understanding that so many people are grabbing onto this idea now of like someone in sitting in Western Australia is not going to solve climate change. But if we can scale out and help other people hook onto these stories and, and the plans of how we're doing things and enable other communities to do it, then that's going to be more powerful, hopefully, <laughs> than the leaders. You cannot underestimate the power of upward pressure on a market. Yeah, I think I think it's actually called a disruptive cycle and it's in a positive way. It's when you are disrupting it and the demand and the, and the need and supply ends up balancing out. It is one way that we can truly move the needle is to buy support things that we agree with and try, I mean, it's, it's also complicated, but buying local and eating a plant-rich diet, it does. And I mean, I think about my mum, she probably wouldn't have had the same reaction if I had said as a child now that I want to go vegetarian because it's just so accessible. And so, I mean, it can be good and bad, but I, I like to, to believe that with the amount of support behind an issue, we can really make a proper change. When you talk about setting your inner compass, is that the moment where the dust has settled a bit and you're going, all right, okay, so I still feel shit about this. It feels terrible as I did, but I'm going to have to do something. There's 180 different degrees to run in. Which direction am I going to run in? Is that what you're talking about there? I think that one is more just kind of honing back into what you actually value because we're, we're in a soup at the moment. We're in this soup of where people don't even need to really tell you if they're marketing something to you on Instagram. It just looks like a friend of yours is plugging this really cool thing that they found. And we're indoctrinated in so many different ways into cultures that we might not completely agree with. So for me, that was kind of, I mean, I'd had my moment of giving up on everything, but I still had this thing kind of going, no, 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 you've got to do it. And it's because it's such a strong value of mine. So I think for that, it's more about identifying your values and understanding that they can be the kind of anchors that you hold on to while there's like this cultural current that can take you off in all sorts of directions. Yeah, it is weird, the uh, cultural things that are imbibing their ways into our community. Mm. It's super strange. It's kind of osmosed in this very strange way throughout my life. You know, it started with television and, you know, that we got a lot more American television than anything else. And now we're getting these weird, you know, kind of American libertarian messages shared in the meme space. You're like, well, that's, yeah, I get it. That makes a lot of sense. If you grew up in, in the gun-loving Texas, doesn't mm. make much sense here, but okay. Like it's, it's kind of fascinating. It is, it's important to know that we're in an echo chamber and by knowing that and also identifying what we value, we can we can kind of branch out and make sure that we're still getting kind of a whole view of of things, but also just kind of separating ourselves a bit from just the constant messaging and it, uh, knowing your values, knowing what's important to you. You can really, I don't know, you can take 
more control of your life and not be so hoodwinked into just kind of the norms that we've accepted that are not normal. <laughs> well, yeah, it's the norms and then it's it's norms or then seeing I should probably make a change. Oh, my God, it's too massive. I can't make a change. Now I feel terrible. Mm. And that's a shit place to be. Yeah, and, and that's one of the powers of social media. I mean, obviously we both use it and, I mean, that's part of my job. And I, I love seeing that the more people talk about certain things, the more it's just becoming normalised again, but we still also need to be aware of the other forces that are working in a different way. Mm. I mean, I think you could take plant-based living as a great example of that. It has become normal. Lots of guys do it. It's not got this toxic masculinity thing that it used to have. It's really, It can be really powerful but we just need to know what our values are when we're holding ourselves up against these messages. I, I call myself plant-based M because I have been for 19 and a half years now, it's now coming up on 20 years. I've dabbled in insect protein over that time. Oh. You know, you, you dabble in and out. Was it tasty? It is, <laughs> but, you know, I say vegan sometimes just because it's easy to explain, but I can't ascribe to that because for me that's it, just a definition of something that's so radically impossible to maintain or achieve in the world we live in unless I revert to some sort of agrarian pasture, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah. it seems in, internally within that community, for, for me, I got a bit turned off by this race to purity and this race to, all oh, right, you you take meds, do you, right? Oh, all oh, right, gelatin capsules. Yeah, right, you're not exactly vegan. Mm, you know, mm. it's like, come on, man. And I've, I've always been like, don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And I understand that not everyone's going to get to a meat-free diet, but mm. eating less meat is going to be okay. It's, it's actually probably going to be way better for you in the long run. You're probably going to live longer and have far less health complications if you eat less meat. And there's ways to talk about that. You know, me asking you to eat less meat isn't I'm going to take your hamburgers away. I'm going to. Yep. Do, I'm here to destroy your barbecue. That's not it. No. It's just I'm here to hopefully help you have a healthier colon. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm only recently have I gone back to being. I'm trying to be as 100% plant based as, as I can, but I haven't been throughout the time because it is. It's. I see it as well in terms of zero waste and plastic free living. People get so puritanical about it, and I'm very impressed by people who can have all of their waste in a jar. I'm like that's three years worth worth of plastic. But you're right. There is. Wow. Some realities, and it can't. The, the pressure can't all be on the individual. There are some things where we we are part of systems that make it incredibly difficult to yeah. do it perfectly, and we need to kind of have a bit of compassion for ourselves in doing the best we can through our circumstances. What what we earn if we're in a food desert, all these things come into play. So yeah, I agree. It's yeah, done is better than perfect. It, it is. <laughs> it is really important, and a lot of your work does focus around how you can use less single-use plastic in your in your day but having it all come down to the individual you know that's a shitty choice like that's that's mm. how you end up and it, it's what you get now when we have crap legislation around our energy policy is you get people going all right fuck i'm just gonna buy the solar panels i'm just gonna put them up there because i'm done with waiting for energy companies to move i'm done with you know legislation to be put in place to make investors feel that they are safe and secure enough to invest. So, But then what happens is you get this gigantic divide of people who can afford to put solar panels on their house and people who's like, well, I'm just, now I'm just going to be paying more, trying to put, pump more and more air conditioning into my shittily insulated home as the temperature gets hotter and hotter. It's just this awful death spiral that people get stuck in. And, and absolutely, I agree with you. At some point, there's got to be an upstream solution. At some point, 
goodness, we did it here. At some point they went, oh, Malcolm Turnbull did it. He says, right, no more tungsten light bulbs, LED from now on. That's it. Now, yep. bear in mind, they waited until no more light bulbs were being manufactured in Australia. So mm. no one was able to, you know, stand there in a high-vis vest in front of a bunch of other people in a high-vis vest and go, they're taking these jobs. <laughs> no, they just went, all right. And what do you know? Like the, the amount of carbon emissions that cut, like, like yeah, because they're so much more efficient. You know, we've done it. We can do it. And does anybody dream of having that light bulb that you have to change at least twice a year on the yeah. tri- hard-to-reach part of your stairwell? No, it's the <laughs> same color. It's the same amount of light. It's cheaper. I don't care. Like it's got to be. Sometimes it's someone upstream's got to flick the switch. Pun intended. We've we've recently had it happen down here in in Southwest WA, where Mark McGowan has said that logging native forest logging will stop in 2022, because we have the most incredible forests down here, and ten football fields worth of them a day were being cleared. Jesus. For wood chips, primarily. So that was one of those ones where it was amazing to see the kind of groundswell behind it and this grassroots, again, pun, of people just kind of going, no, this is not okay. And now that he's done that, it's just amazing having a leader doing something like that where we can also compassionately help the workers, although there aren't a phenomenal amount of them, but help those workers transition into renewable jobs and provide sort of buffets for them as well, buffers for them as well. So, yeah, you do need the top down and upstream as well. Yeah, I think about my my own industry. I think about, you know, recently, you know, Barnaby Joyce and all these guys screaming and yelling about coal miners. And I'm like, my industry of television, since I've started in it, has been continuously fractured and fractured and fractured again by mm. pay TV and then by digital and then by cord cutters, the aforementioned people who do not have their antennas plugged in. Like... Mm-hmm. No, no one's moving to help my industry transition. We are just having to figure it out and we are and we're doing great. But it's, it's kind of interesting. Like some industries, we are, these jobs are sacred. Everyone else is like, well, you didn't adapt. But, and and yeah. that, it's kind of weird, you know? Like vinyl records. Where's the justice for the vinyl record salespeople? <laughs> and you just kind of go, well, we, we change. And I think that's something where I get frustrated in arguments where, or debates, <laughs> where people are saying, oh, no, but what about these things? It's like things change, things date. Yeah. And we have new knowledge that we acquire where we can do better and, and adapt. And we need to be doing that while still helping the people transition away, the ones that are affected yeah. with their employment and stuff. But yeah. we're creative. That's what's awesome about humans. <laughs> yeah, I want every single person who lives in the Hunter Valley to be able to put food on the table and feed their kids and give their children a better life than they do. I really want that for every person that works in the fossil fuel industry in my country. I really, really want that. And the sooner that we give the people who do those jobs that security, the less we'll be able to kind of bleat and moan. And But as I said before, it's easy to scare people. It's easy to just go, oh, your solar panels won't work at night. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's, it's easy. One that I get constantly, um, I put up just a silly image of a big wind farm fan saying I'm a fan of, a big fan of renewable energy. And people came back to me and were going, do you know how many birds those fans kill? Excellent. And it genuinely does, especially raptor species. But you kind of go, but then, hey, we're human. We're here. Of course, we're going to, there's no choice. We make an impact. And have you looked at how many birds are killed due to the fossil fuel industry, which is 
much bigger and mining and all of those things like it's those non-arguments it's the what about ifism like well what about that and yeah I try to focus on just what you said we all want our families to be safe we all want to be able to earn money and how can we work back from that in a way that's not going to jeopardize our not so distant future anymore I think what aboutism is is definitely just a tactic used to deflate and confuse and get you off topic mm-hmm. you know it's like we've all been in that altercation with the one we love mm-hmm. honey the the thing i thought you were going to pick up that thing yeah but you didn't take the bins out like, <laughs> okay that is true i didn't take the bins out but we're here talking about this but what about when it's like well okay that is also true that is another thing i didn't do but i'm asking you about this you yeah. know it's a thing that we use all the time in our own relationships i'm sure we've yeah. all we've all done it deflect but, <laughs> it's just on a gigantic scale. It's tricky to try and keep on topic. And look, we mentioned before about some things are just overwhelming in the space between being so overwhelmed you can't do anything and being so overwhelmed you are just crushed with fear and horror. There has to be, and for me, you know, I always thought thought about this, you know, the only way out of the flames is through. Action really, truly is the only way to make yourself personally feel better. What have you got to say about just doing just something, anything. I love that you said that about the flames because it's true. I, I think I think people don't understand or they underestimate how the weight of procrastination or denial or trying to just be the ostrich with your head in the sand. I think it's it's amazing. And like on a very small scale, if I've got an email that I haven't replied to, that can nag at me for so long. I then reply to it. It takes a minute and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so much more energetic. I can do all the things. It's the same with with this sort of activism. Just choosing something, even though it's big and just starting it, it's getting that ball rolling. And I see it a lot. That's kind of chapter four is all, or step four is all about that. I, I see it when people are looking at global issues and they get just, oh, it's just inundated with all these emotions. Like it's the looking at the Amazon rainforest being deforested and kind of going, well, what can I do? And when I saw that, I did feel overwhelmed. And then I was like, well, that's when I discovered about the logging that was happening in my backyard. And that's when I got involved with that organization. And just that process of knowing that I'm on the ground in my area doing something, it alleviated so much of the of the stress and pressure I was feeling at generally at 3am. <laughs> just awake and yeah ruminating uh, you and me both emily it's the the perils of like the brain that i've got has given me the career that i've got yet sometimes the brain that i've got is it doesn't oh it's hard to live with yeah, it's bad just roommate it's just wired <laughs> it's just wired that way it just yep. is and it's it's, it can be hard sometimes, particularly for yeah. people I live with. Tell me about what what did it feel like once you started to get involved, for example, with that community of people opposing the logging that we were just talking about? Once you started to find those people, what did that do for you? Firstly, a sense of belonging. And it's lovely to be connected to something that's bigger than yourself. I wasn't as involved with that organisation, but I have recently um, become involved with a local environmental group where we've got this terrible landfill that's leaching all these chemicals everywhere. And it's just amazing just to kind of not feel alone in it and also to be able to bolster each other in in real time. Like we're getting together, we're having meaningful conversations. We're also having nice conversations where we're socialising. And it's around this kind of joint purpose that's just 
it doesn't feel hollow because sometimes I feel like you're kind of walking around in an alternate reality when you're in your head thinking about like the IPCC report, for example, and no one else seems to know about it. And since I've been involved in that, I've got other friends involved. So it's growing. Mm. So you feel like you're having a real tangible effect and getting a community in the, in the process as well. Just interrupting Emily for a little moment to say that if you like this show, the best thing you can do for me, the best thing you do for all of us is to tell someone about the show. Just let them know. Uh, you can share it using the app you're listening to right now. You can hit share in the corner and just text it or post it or send it to a friend or DM it to somebody or, or whatever, somebody who needs to hear this episode today. Or, um, you know, just tell someone when you're seeing someone and chatting, oh, you listen to this podcast, you should check it out. Yeah, Emily Ellis, she's great. I found her on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, she did a podcast. She's cool. Just tell someone. That helps us enormously. Huge, huge, huge. If you want to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram. You might hear an ad. Yeah, right here because I need to pay Andy and Rachel and Bree and, and the people that help me make this show. If you don't hear an ad, we'll hear more from M. But if you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've got young kids, and I'm asking you this like genuinely, <laughs> in the days after you digested the latest IPCC report, how did you, you know, I want to play with some Play-Doh. How did you just play with the kids? I've got to say that was quite, I wasn't surprised by what was in the report, but there were some of the things like, for example, the sea level rise, the the polar melt. Yeah, I had to really process that. And that's that original piece that we were talking about early on, accepting that there is grief around it. I did feel kind of in a haze playing with them and kind of going, do I send them to school? Because what's the point of being in these systems where they're they're not really taught to question things? But I've kind of settled on the fact that I can just do the best I can with them on the hours that they're not at school. And I'm going to be honest with them about the fact that this is going to be something that they they have to learn about and be part of the right side of history and, and work on it. So we, we really, we change our social life around it now. We would go do cleanups and those are their kind of I'll take them to fun places as well, but I make sure that they see that activism and getting involved is not negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was texting with someone I know that's in Glasgow right now, and I was mm. I was texting them back and forth, and um, they were they're feeling a bit of the overwhelm that we're talking about, and I just sent them a photo of uh, of Wolfie and his mates at daycare, and I'm like, see these kids? These kids are two. Mm. They'll be hitting high school in 2030. And this person was like, yeah, right, okay. 
(laughs) It's really, it's funny. I I do a sustainability committee at the school and my eldest is almost nine. So I haven't got to that kind of early teenage stage where I've been kind of up against that. And I was like, what would they like to talk about? Like plastic? And they're like, oh, they're really interested in regenerative agriculture. Yes. I was like, okay, right. And most of them were boys, year six boys, which I was shocked by and so heartened by it as well. But yeah, it is disheartening when you see this kind of education system that's not really reflecting the reality that they're going to be faced with when they're graduating. You know, and I have no doubt that we as humans, we will figure out a way to deal with whatever comes because we Mm. do. Mm. All right. And uh, I think part of the, the grief and the struggle that I feel every day is but it shouldn't have to be that hard, Mm. you know? But again, as you mentioned earlier, what if this is the price we pay to figure out how to make life more equal for everybody on the planet? What if this is the price we have to pay? I do agree with that, but I also think that we have so many opportunities to get back to what being human actually is, which Mm. is not just sitting at a desk doing something that has no meaning or purpose to us, barely seeing our kids, being able to buy a new thing though, that's not a life and that's not being human and it's not to judge people who are stuck in that because, I mean, my husband for one currently is quite stuck in that. It's not that but it's just kind of going, hey, we've got a way that's going to not only solve the big problem of a heated planet but we can actually get back to a joyous existence in the process. It can feel nicer. To rewild not just ourselves but the planet. (laughs) Well, yeah, and then not try terraform Mars. Like we can we can start in our local communities. We can we can share things more. We can know our neighbors' names. That was a big thing for me a few years ago. I didn't want to say hello to my neighbours. If I've got, I mean it's not that I didn't, but if I'm not wearing a bra and I'm putting out the bin, I wouldn't say hi. And then um, I saw someone speaking, I can't remember who it was, but just talking about the power of connecting with our communities to solve problems and just sharing resources. And from there on, I've got lifelong friends from our neighbours in various places that we've lived. So it can, it's, it's nicer. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. I'm grateful to say that I know the names of most of the people in my street. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm really grateful for. And I now, uh, and you're right, a couple of years ago, I didn't want to know the person that lived in the apartment next to me. I didn't want to know their name. I'd avoid their eye contact and the lift and all that kind of stuff because I wanted to just be kind of left alone. But, you know, then what? I'm just a guy by myself in a box looking on a laptop at pictures of other people together. Right? Yeah. And also, and the, the, the importance of that as well is just kind of going, well, you probably won't have exactly the same political ideology as your neighbour. And you guys will talk. You will like each other before you get into a debate. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you do get into that debate, you're going to approach it with compassion and not be this kind of tribalist thing where you just kind of try and paint a person as a colour, as in like red or blue. Mm -hmm. You're going to be more willing to engage and listen and get to a joint solution. If people find themselves... Without hope, if they're listening to this going, yeah, yeah, that's all good, Emily, but I'm, I still feel hopeless. What's your kind of first aid for the moment? They found this podcast hoping to get a bit of, get, get me out of this moment. I'm terrified. What's mm. your first aid there? So I talk about goose energy in the book and kind of talking about the fact that when geese fly, 
the leader is at the top is the strongest. It's flying to the headwind. There's two at the back and they all lift each other. If there's a sick goose, they get escorted down to the ground by two other geese. And then if they recover, they are escorted back to the flock while the flock's kept going. I think identifying where you're at, if you are truly exhausted, if you are in bad circumstances where it's been financially terrible and lots of people in lockdown have had such extreme stress, I just think it's important to normalize resting and recovering and processing that grief as a first step. But secondly, if you're not so exhausted, if you can kind of have a bit of get up and go, finding people who are like you, finding your community and just talking about it, you know, connecting over these things, because I can guarantee that you are not alone in whatever is keeping you up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that, I think for me, Emily, that was the, that was the main horror that my, my brain convinced me that I was the only person that knew or cared. Mm. And that's absolutely, if you want to talk about changing the story, that's absolutely not true. I'm far from the only person that knows or cares. It took a while for my brain to accept that, but it's very, very, very true. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this. I know you've got kids and Oh, you're in, that's right, you're in Perth, so there's no homeschooling. You're like living in the land of the free uh, yeah. <laughs> over in Western Australia. <laughs> but thanks for taking time out of your day to do this. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that we, uh, we got in touch and we could do this today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice. And that was Emily Ellis. Her book is called Hope is a Verb. And you can find her at Eco with M, E-C-O-W-I-T-H-E-M. Uh, on Instagram, and the book is called Hope is a Verb. Get it wherever you get your bookie books. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of it. Wednesday, we're back with Better Make It Quick, the Wednesday edition of the show, which is just, I guess, a look into... We've done hundreds of interviews. Uh, four, three, four hundred more interviews. Like we got, We've done this show since 2013, so there's hundreds and hundreds of interviews to listen to. But I asked Bree, who's working on the show with us, I said, just go back and find your favourites, because I've got my favourites, but... You know, I love. I'm loving the episodes she's pulling out of the back catalogue because they're not ones that I would have chosen. I mean, I would have chosen the Kia, but I, they're all my, you know, favourite children. So, she has found some fantastic episodes, and um, she's helping us cut them up and make them like a little 20 minute hits. So, I really hope you enjoy that on Wednesday because if you haven't listened to the full Nakia episode, but you don't have an hour and whatever it took to have the chat, you just want to whack something out on a commute. Boom. Wednesdays are for you. I'm back here on Friday for a conversation. I should let you know, again, there are live shows coming. Uh, Lauren and Rachel and I, we're planning the live shows. Um, we're hoping Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, hoping around April. Watch this space, but keep that in mind. I'll let you know first where you can get tickets um, before I tell everybody else. So I'll tell you here on the podcast first before I post it anywhere else. Massive thanks to the people that that made the show today. Thank you to Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of my life. Thank you to Bree Steele on uh, production support and research. And thank you to Andy Ma, the audio magician that made everything. And Toe Hider, who's making this beautiful music you're listening to right now. He's fantastic. Go find him on Twitch. He's the best. Thanks for listening. I'll see you Wednesday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 